Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In London, this is The Economist with Tasting Menu, a selection of the tastiest morsels from this week's issue. I'm Anne McElvoy, Senior Editor. And on the menu this week, a gene editing company files for an IPO. Why forecasting growth remains elusive and the death of the nightclub. But first, the Saudi blueprint was our cover line this week. For years, Saudi Arabia has relied on its vast oil wealth and the regional leadership of its patron, America, to maintain calm. But plunging oil prices and a lessening American presence are unsettling the desert kingdom. The visible result is the brutal treatment of dissent at home and assertiveness abroad that has just been on chilling display. On January the 2nd, Saudi Arabia executed 47 people. Most of them were terrorists linked to al-Qaeda, but some, including a prominent Shia cleric, simply called for the fall of the ruling House of Saud. Yet, in an exclusive interview with The Economist, the deputy crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, unveiled his designs for his country. Prince Mohammed has drawn up a blueprint designed to throw open Saudi Arabia's closed economy and government, including, he says, the possible sale of shares in the national oil firm Saudi Aramco. Coupling geopolitical swagger with sweeping economic change is a gamble, especially considering that petrocash has fueled an easy life for many in Saudi Arabia. More than money is at stake. This largesse has disguised how far the economy is chronically unproductive and dependent on foreign labour. It has been too easy for Saudis to avoid working or to snooze away in government offices. Nonetheless, monumental change could be on the horizon. You can read the full transcript of our interview with the Deputy Crown Prince online at economist.com. Change isn't always celebrated, and an article in our Europe section this week explored the sad demise of the European nightclub. Our reporting takes us from the sands of the Saudi desert to the depths of a Berlin basement. In the sweaty, dimly lit interior, about 100 people are dancing to repetitive beats. Others sprawl on seats near the bar, clutching drinks or other people. The club, one of the first places in Germany to play techno music, seems as popular as when it was launched in 1991. Oh, get me there. Between 2001 and 2011, the number of discotheken in the Netherlands fell by 38%. In Britain, there were 3,144 clubs in 2005, but only 1,733 ten years later. Urban evolution, it seems, may not have left room for warehouse raves. Partly, this is because most European cities are becoming nicer to live in. Clubs are being pushed farther out. Gentrification can muffle the high decibel economy. And restraint seems to be a la mode. In Germany, Britain, Denmark and Spain, 
the use of MDMA, or ecstasy, which makes bonding with strangers and dancing to repetitive thumping sounds far more enjoyable, has fallen among 15 to 34-year-olds. As young people across Europe turn away from intoxication, some good news befalls their generational cohort over in Canada. As a piece in our America's section explained, it seems millennials are better off on their side of the border. Canadians obsessively compare their country with a certain neighbouring superpower. Often, the contrast is reassuring. Few Canadians would want the United States lax gun laws or its ridiculously expensive health care. But there are some downsides to being, well, sensible Canadians. Economic comparisons are usually more sobering. Canadians are less rich than Americans and have fewer globally famous brands. Silicon Valley exports high-tech disruption. Alberta's tar sands produce pollution. So a recent report had some welcome news. Canadians born in the 1980s are better off than their American peers. Canadians aged 25 to 34 are more likely to have jobs than Americans of the same age. Go Canada! Just over half are homeowners, compared with 36% in the United States. Much of the millennial advantage can be traced to Canadian paternalism, that of the state and that of the youngsters' indulgent parents. Let's hope they're grateful then. There's one thing all humans pass on to their offspring, genes, though not of the denim variety. Yet if people aren't happy with their genetic information, in the not-too-distant future, they may be able to simply edit it. For now, more monetary concerns are at hand. As an article in our business section reported, a gene editing company has just filed for an IPO. As difficult sales pitches go, this one is hard to beat. This biotech company has burned through $75 million in the past few years and has not yet started clinical work on a drug candidate. It says it will be many years, if ever, before it has something ready to commercialise. Nevertheless, a plea for funding has just been announced. Shares in Editas Medicine, which filed on January 4th for an initial public offering, look set to draw great interest from investors. It will be an opportunity to buy into a revolutionary new technology called CRISPR-Cas9, which allows DNA to be cut and edited almost as easily as one might rewrite a document on a computer. They aren't the only ones looking for a snip of the market. In the past two years, about $1 billion of venture capital financing has been invested in new gene-editing technologies. This reflects the promise the technology offers for producing treatments and even cures for a wide range of conditions. While we ponder how all this might work out, how about predicting it? High up on the list of popular predictions is, of course, the economy. But as our free exchange columnist explained, in our finance pages this week, growth is devilishly hard to predict. Since economic output represents the aggregated activity of billions of people, Influenced by forces seen and unseen, it is a wonder forecasters ever get it right. Yet economists cannot resist trying. Their approach usually relies on two predictive methods. One is theory-based, shaped by how economists believe economies behave. The other is data-based, shaped by how economies have behaved in the past. Yet both strategies have faced criticism. For example... Too many things tend to happen at once to isolate cause and effect. Liberalised trade might boost growth, 
or liberalisation might be the sort of thing that governments do when growth is rising, or both liberalisation and growth might follow from some third factor. The International Monetary Fund, or IMF, publishes forecasts for 189 countries twice a year. The Economist has conducted an analysis of them from 1999 to 2014 and compared their accuracy with several slightly less sophisticated forecasting methods, predicting that a country will grow at the same pace as the year before, guessing 4%, which is the average growth rate across all countries during the period, and picking a random number from minus 2% to 10%. And you can see the results and the chart in our article online. For a more antiquated display of growth, we turn to the Asia section, where a box revealed the imminent loss of the world's biggest fish market. On January 5th, in a pre-dawn ritual going back decades, a handbell rang to mark the year's first auction at Tsukiji, Tokyo's sprawling fish market. The star attraction was a glistening 200-kilogram tuna sold to a sushi restaurant chain for 14 million yen. That's $118,000. That's a good few portions of sashimi. But the sale was tinged with nostalgia and even bitterness. This time next year, the wholesale market, the world's busiest, will be gone. And not without reason. Some 60,000 people work under its leaky roof and hundreds of forklifts carrying everything from sea urchins to whale meat careen across bumpy floors. The site's owner, the city government, wants it moved. But the occupants are already grieving for their shrine. One of the last links to the city's mercantile past, Tsukiji has changed little in decades. Men lick pencil stubs before writing on scraps of paper. One of the few modern devices is a digital clock, counting down the days till November, when most of the activity will fall silent, along with Tsukiji's beautiful bedlam. So long and thanks for all the fish. A quick flip to our science section leaves the raucous market behind and casts us into the silence of space, where the search for extraterrestrial life continues. Some reporting from this week's American Astronomical Society reveals that globular clusters are a good place to go hunting. Globular clusters are roughly spherical collections of hundreds of thousands of stars. These, in turn, are among the oldest stellar inhabitants of galaxies. And a pair of scientists are convinced that among these ancient realms, alien life could be found. The cluster's very age means that life will have had the best chance of coming into existence and then climbing the ladder of complexity to the point where it can travel from star to star. Moreover, interstellar jet-setting would be, well, a breeze. A space-faring cluster inhabitant would have to travel on average only about 1,000 times the distance from Earth to the Sun to get to its nearest stellar neighbour. For humans, that distance is 275,000 times the Earth-Sun distance. A mere hop, then. Not only does this make travel easier, it also makes communication practical. Messages between a home planet and its outposts could be sent and received with the same sort of delay as those between European countries and their colonies before the invention of the electric telegraph. If it sounds a bit far-fetched, just think it's still a far cry from Star Wars. Colonising an entire galaxy was always going to be a big ask. Annexing a cluster, though, looks eminently doable. Over and out, ground control. I'm Anne McElvoy. That was our tasting menu. And if you're hungry for a little more, you can find all of our stories on our website at economist.com. In London, 
This is The Economist. 